0: So we are continuing our journey, our trek, through the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And we, truthfully, haven't covered a whole lot of ground up until this point. Now we'll finish chapter 4 this morning and um, move into... You'll remember I said that Matthew has five major discourses. We'll move into the first of those major discourses the next time we are in Matthew. <clears throat> that would be the Sermon on the Mount. And we are going, we haven't covered a lot of ground at this point. We're going to really slow down in the Sermon on the Mount, just so you know. I'm just giving you a fair warning. We're not going to run through it, we're going to take our time and we're going to be there a while. So, just want want to let you know that. But up to this point, we have seen the king, various aspects of the king. We said that Matthew was trying to present, or not trying to, Matthew was presenting Jesus as the king who would fill David's throne for eternity. And we've seen his ancestry in his genealogy. We've seen his birth that was prophesied about. We saw the king makers come and give him gifts after that. We saw him... Fly into Egypt, not literally fly, but like the flight into Egypt is what that passage is called. And, and then he came back and settled in Nazareth, and then he was in obscurity for 28 years or so. And then we saw a man named John the Baptist who was the king's herald, preparing the way for the king who was coming. And that same John the Baptist would then baptize Jesus, even though John didn't think he should. Jesus said, yeah, we should do this. And then we saw the king sent out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to have a tussle with the devil. He was tempted by the devil. And then last week we saw the king's movement, the king's message, and the king's messenger. We talked about how he had moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. We talked about the message that he had, which was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is the same message John had. But now this was... Happening. It wasn't coming, it was happening. And then we saw him choose his first four disciples. And that's what we've seen up until this point. And what we're going to look at today is the king is going to kick things into high gear. But maybe not in a way that you suspect. Stay with me there, okay? If you would stand with us, we're going to read Matthew chapter 4, verses 12. Matthew four twelve through chapter 5, verse 2. What we're going to cover today is verses 23, 24, 25, 1 and 2. But we want to read this whole section before we move into what's going on. So, be in awe of the very words of God this morning. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen." So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your word. We thank You for Your servant Jesus. We thank You for His life, His ministry, His faithfulness, His goodness, His grace. Now we ask that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, God, You would teach us and instruct us so that we might be like Him. More like Him than we were before we came into this building. We trust You to have Your good way in us. And God, if there be those this morning who are here who do not know this Jesus as their Savior... Holy Spirit, convict them, show them their need, and reveal to them this glorious, wonderful Savior that we've celebrated already this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we'll start with verse 23. And He, being Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So we saw last week that Jesus had moved from Nazareth to Capernaum after He had went down to Jerusalem and spent some time there. We look at that in John 1-4, through that missing year between verses 11 and 12 of Matthew 4. So He had settled in Capernaum. So there in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee would be His base of operations, literally the place where He lived. That would be where he was rooted and grounded. Now, if you take a look at this map here, this is Galilee. This is the region of Galilee. Of course, you've got the Sea of Galilee right there. That's the big body of water. And you see Nazareth down there near the bottom and the trek up to Capernaum. So this is where Jesus left in Nazareth, came up to and settled in Capernaum. Um, and it's here... In these places and towns, which there's not a lot of them labeled, there are some labels which you probably can't see. I can't even see them. But it's going to be important that we're familiar with this geography. Okay? It's going to be important that we know what's going on when He goes from, say, Galilee to Judea. It's going to be important that we see town names like Chorazin and Capernaum and Tyre and Sidon, because Jesus is going to talk about those things uh, throughout, his, uh, throughout the account that Matthew gives us. So it's going to be really good to know what the lay of the land is here. Now, this is north, and we'll look in a minute. Well, Actually, let's go ahead and go there. This is what we looked at last week. If you look near the bottom right there, you see Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Jericho, and then you go up north to Nazareth, Cana, Capernaum. So down here on the right, you've got the Dead Sea. Top left, you've got the Sea of Galilee. Okay. So again, it's important to understand where Jesus is When he's doing what he's doing, so this geography I'm belaboring it on on purpose because it's important. Because Jesus speaks specific messages at specific times in specific places, and his surroundings will kind of form the classroom of what he's teaching about. Okay, Jesus was very thorough. Jesus was—I mean, he was a God, so I mean, he was really good at what he did. So he used his surroundings. So it's important that we know what these surroundings are. Okay. So this is the area that we would call Israel-Palestine today. Of course, you got the region of Samaria, Judea, back in that day. So it's going to be important. So back where we were today, it says he was going throughout all Galilee. That's up north there, or around the Sea of Galilee. Now this is not aimless wandering. He's just kind of wandering through Galilee, hoping that something happens. This is purposeful movement. It was His plan to work through the whole region. Jesus did not ever, nor does He ever, do anything by accident. He lived in prayerful obedience to what the Father directed Him to do. We've seen that since before His birth. Even people who were sinning played into the plan of God to get Jesus through that ancestry born. So He didn't just go from town to town checking out the local eateries and giving Yelp reviews and... Uh, not not so good. Biscuits were dry. That's not what He's doing here, okay? He went and taught in their synagogues. And He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So that's a three-pronged work. And that's going to serve the basis of everything we do today, okay? Jesus' three-pronged work in this area of Galilee. He was teaching, He was preaching, and He was healing. Okay? So we're going to break that down, those three things, and see what they actually mean a little better. First, he taught in their synagogues. Synagogue is a fun word to say, synagogue. So each town that had a Jewish population, they said of at least 10 adult males. 10 adult Jewish males. If that town had at least 10 adult Jewish males, they had a synagogue. Okay, And this is the place where the Jews would meet to corporately worship. The method of meeting in synagogues had started for the Jews, it's thought, when they were exiled into Babylon, if not just a little bit before. They couldn't conduct temple worship the way that they always had. And they couldn't always come to the temple. Again, we're in Galilee here. That's way up north. Not everybody could just go to the temple and worship. So they would set up these small meeting places in each town. And some towns had more than one synagogue. Okay, And they would corporately worship. In Babylon... In exile, all those years ago, I guess 600 years before our account today, they would meet there and they started doing things, well, kind of like we do. They'd have public readings of Scripture, they'd have teaching on that Scripture, and they'd have religious activities. A lot of times the synagogues kind of served as community centers too. It's where the rabbis hung out and people would come and hear them teach. They would have events there, different things, but they worshipped there. That was the big thing. So those faithful Jews in exile in Babylon would meet and have public readings, have the teaching, have other religious activities, which is a lot like what we do, right? Actually, Christian church meetings today are very closely laid out like the Jewish synagogue meetings were. We found our roots in early Jewishness, right? And those early Jews who became Christians were worshiping in synagogues, and houses, small places. So we do similar things as they did. Now... <clears throat> If a rabbi was visiting a certain town, the visiting rabbi was always given permission and actually preference to speak. And what they would do is they would read a section of Scripture, then they would ask the rabbis who were present, tell us about this, teach us about this. Okay, That was kind of common for them. Read the passage and then the teaching would go from there. And that's what Jesus was doing in this teaching ministry. He was teaching in their synagogues. Now can you imagine... Jesus walks into your synagogue. Hey, you know, I just take my message and throw it away. You come and talk. That's gonna be Again, they didn't recognize him for who he was, truly. Some people might have. But could you imagine? They're reading the scripture. And Jesus, who is the author of that scripture, stands up and says, This is what this means. And that would have been awesome, right? Huh? I'd say he was pretty spot on. I don't think we had to check his hermeneutic, right? So, we've got an example of this, actually, in Luke 4. Let's look at that. If you've got Bibles, you can turn there. If not, everything will be up here because we want the words in front of your eyes. So we see an example of Jesus doing this in Nazareth, okay? And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now let me just say something real quick, which is not in my notes. Jesus went to church on the Sabbath. We're supposed to be like Jesus. You should be on church in church on the Sabbath. Our Sabbath is Sunday. We won't get into the specifics of that. You should be on church at church because Jesus went to church. And he stood up to read. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So what they would do is they would systematically work through the scroll of the word that they had. The law, the prophets, the writings. And it just so happened at this time when Jesus was in Nazareth, they were in the section of the scroll where Isaiah was prophesying about the one who was coming. So Jesus unrolls it, reads it. And now set down is important. We'll get to that later. But that's what rabbis did when they taught. They would sit down to teach. Well, what do you think? I don't, I don't I'd like to stand up, but not so that y'all can see me, but so I can see you, because I'm short. But they would sit down to teach. So when Jesus sat down and said, All the eyes in the synagogue were on him, because they knew he was about to teach. And what was this what was his passage? Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. There's his message. Everybody's like, Oh! you're like, well, that's not really a lot of message, but it is huge, right? And I just want you to see what that looked like. So he walked in, he was the visiting rabbi, so they let him read the scripture, and then he taught what the scripture meant. And basically, in this message, he just said, this is about me. Mm-hmm. Of course, later they would try to kill him in the same town. They tried to push him over a hill, but he passed through their midst because it wasn't his time. For but th- the same reason, that he claimed to be God. For the same, right, because he did claim to be God. So here Jesus read the passage, said some words about it, and the people marveled at His gracious words. And I'd say that's pretty indicative of how it happened wherever He went. When we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, the people were amazed because He spoke as one who had authority. And boy, howdy, did He. We'll see at the end of Matthew, He's got all authority, right? So then back in Matthew, this is what He's doing through all of Galilee. So that's teaching, okay? The second thing He was doing was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So teaching, preaching, healing. We're on preaching, which is proclaiming. Same word, preaching and proclaiming. And He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now Jesus was a peripatetic rabbi. Not a pretty pathetic, but peripatetic, which just means He walked around when He talked. Which means He used His feet. Okay, He was a circuit walker, right. The Methodists were not wrong or something. So he walked around and he taught and he preached. And as he walked around, he proclaimed, heralded, preached the gospel of the kingdom. His ministry had begun with the message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he is proclaiming, heralding, preaching what that kingdom looks like. And we're going to see that markedly in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. And this message of the kingdom is called the gospel. Of the kingdom. Everybody knows what the word gospel means, right? It means good news. So Jesus is walking around telling everyone the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Which we should be doing too. We'll get to that at the end. Sounds like something a king might do, right? Let me tell you about my kingdom. Not his grandkids, right? Sorry. He's not, he do not have pictures of his grandkids. He's. Let me tell you about my kingdom. It's good news and I want to share it with you. Now keep that frame in mind. Because it is good news. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven. So we have the king himself explaining what his kingdom is all about, and that's preaching. And finally, he was teaching, he was preaching. What else was he doing? He was healing. In Jesus, God arrived on the scene in a very intentional and tangible way. And listen, when God shows up, his omnipotence manifests itself. And He overwhelms every sickness and disease. Now can you imagine? What a powerful testimony to the goodness of the news of this kingdom He was proclaiming. He was teaching them from the Jewish Scriptures. He was proclaiming His newly realized kingdom. And He was showing it all through physical healings. Not just some, but every disease, every affliction among the people. Jesus didn't pray and hope for healing. God, if you would, possibly, maybe, in your sovereign will, if maybe you just might reach down and possibly touch this person, please. No, no, no. Jesus was a spectacle. He's walking through these towns. He's teaching, He's preaching, and people are being healed of every sickness and disease and every affliction that they had. Sickness, disease, affliction... Demonic possession, paralytics that could not stand before Jesus. He was quite the spectacle, and he made it his point to get through all of Galilee teaching, preaching, and healing. Now, the question is did it work? What do you think? Yeah. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and He healed them. Yes, it worked. It says that His fame spread throughout all Syria. Now, if you look at the map, there's a different map. Okay, Ooh-wee. way down on the bottom, you got that tiny blue speck. That's the Sea of Galilee where Jesus had His uh, roots. See up north, Syria? That's really north. That's far north. Okay? You got that little speck that is the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, down where Jesus was based. And it says his fame spread through all Syria. That's north and east of Israel and Palestine and Galilee. So it says his fame spread that way first. Now, remember last week. We said that Galilee was in a crossroads area and that all of the trade routes, north and south, east and west, came through Galilee. And we see that here. You see this road. You see this passage here. These, this is actually a, a, a map of one of Paul's journeys. So when he came out from where he was, he went north up through Syria. So this crossroads area... man. Jesus' fame, He's healing people. He's doing crazy things that nobody's ever done before. And His fame spreads up that trade route into the northern part of northern area above Israel. And His fame spreading up there is predominantly to Gentiles. Now, there were Jewish people all through here for sure. And as Paul makes his journeys, he stops in synagogues along the way. It's his first stop. So there's a Jewish population. But this is primarily Gentile area. And his fame spreads in the Gentile area. Listen, when you're healing people, there's no racial barrier, right? Everybody hurts. That's what R.E.M. told me sometimes, right? (laughs) Yeah. So anyway... um, So even in Assyria, people were hearing about this guy, Jesus. And again, I just want to show that to show this is not some tiny little speck on the map. This is big. This is getting into Roman territory, Gentile territory, and people are like, this guy, Jesus, is healing people. We want to know what that's about. They knew Him for healing primarily. So they brought the sick, those oppressed by demons, and any malady you could think of, and Jesus healed them. Now, can you imagine the stir this was causing? Look at those words again. Sick, disease, pains, oppressed by demons, seizures, paralytics. All being healed by this recently relocated rabbi from despised Nazareth. Traveling around with his no-name disciples, now made up of fishermen and other non-religious professions. We just saw the call of four, but Jesus has got more disciples than that traveling around with him. We know that he ends up with 12, right? 12 primary disciples and a whole crowd of disciples. They were bringing people to Him wherever He went, and He was speaking healing. He was laying hands on people. He was verbally rebuking fevers and demons and scores of other things. If you heard that there was a guy who was healing everybody in Washington, D.C., would you go there? If you heard that there was a guy up in Canada healing everybody, would you try to get there if you needed healing? Could you imagine the treks that some of these people were making with paralytics? Demon-possessed people, people with aches and pains, and they're traveling from this giant area and all around to come down and see this guy and say, Will you heal me? And imagine when he did. Can you imagine? People who hadn't walked before. They're walking. People who had demons. And they're clean now. They're free. That old familiar ache and pain you got? Gone. Had to be a spectacle. Had to be quite the experience. No wonder his fame was spreading, even among the Gentile nations. But it wasn't just Gentile nations. Four twenty-five, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So we saw Syria in that last verse. But now this is going to be really important, as we see. I don't know if you can see that or not. So the see the purple up there, Trachonitis. To the west of that, you've got Galilee, and you've got the Sea of Galilee um, up in the north. That's a smaller body of water. Again, I don't know if you can see that or not. But it's important to see Galilee's up there, Judea, Jerusalem's down near the bottom, and then you've got Perea, Decapolis, Trachonitis. These are the the nations surrounding the country of Israel. Okay, So this is the map that we need to be really familiar with here. Okay, When it talks about the Decapolis, you need to know where that's at. You need to know that that's to the east of the River Jordan and that's pagan territory. We'll talk about that in a second. Okay, You need to know when it says something about Trachonitis or when it says something about um, Galilee, Samaria, Judea. You need to know where those things are at. So, we already discussed Galilee, but Decapolis, there to the east of the Jordan, it's not colored for whatever reason. Okay? That was known as the Decapolis because Deca is what? Ten. And Polis is city or town. So these are the ten towns, the ten cities, which is made up of ten cities. Okay, And that, had, that area had been settled around the time of Alexander the Great, about 300 years prior to Jesus' time, by mostly Greek inhabitants. The ten towns, which may be important, maybe not, Cephopolis and Hippos... And those were the only two towns out of the ten in what we would call Israel today. The other towns were Pella, Gadara, Dion, Gerasa, Canatha, Rafana, Damascus, and Philadelphia. You've heard of a few of those probably, but not all of them. And this region was patently Gentile and was considered by the Jews to be the far country. Does that ring a bell with you? Jesus talked about the far country in the parable of the prodigal son. Okay? Why was it the far country? These people were pagans. These people were Greeks. They kept pigs in order to eat pork and to sacrifice pigs to their idols. Of course, Jews abhorred pigs and pork because God told them they couldn't eat that. So when the prodigal's there and he's wanting to eat the food that the swine is eating, it's that area that Jesus is referring to. And these people know this. Okay, These people were pagans. They were into pigs okay? in the Decapolis. Which, hey, I get it, right? Bacon. So they were given to riotous living. which So the prodigal, again, wasted his money on riotous living. That's what they did. The fact that people from the Decapolis were following Jesus. Now again, these aren't, these aren't just people who were coming to see Him. They were following Him. And the fact that people from the Decapolis were following Him showed that His influence was not just a Jewish nor even a religious Syrian phenomenon, but was also a pagan one too. People from all over were getting wind of the good things Jesus was doing and they were following Him. What about the Jews? Well, yeah, it says Jerusalem and Judea too. That's where the Jews are centered. So you know the Pharisees and the Sadducees were happy about that, right? Probably not. We'll get to them. And the end of the verse also says that from beyond the Jordan too. on the map, that's the area to the east of the Jordan River. That's the Trachonitis and other unlabeled areas. So, I mean, this is a big deal. This ministry thing is just really taken off. And people from all over are coming to be healed and people from all over are coming to follow Jesus. Okay, In a day and time with no internet, no telephone, I know, crazy, right? No mass transit at all, the fame of this formerly obscure Nazarene rabbi was spreading like wildfire across the deserts, the plains, the hills, the mountains and the valleys of the whole Middle Eastern region. The verse said, great crowds followed Jesus. Now, we don't have a way to number that. But just know it's a lot of people. It's a big throng of people wherever he goes. I don't want to put a number on it. Just great crowds. And Matthew will repeatedly point to the crowds that followed Jesus. There's 40, I think 49 references in Matthew to the crowds in in Matthew's account of what Jesus did. So the crowds are going to be important. Okay? These crowds will constantly and consistently be thronging around Jesus. These crowds will always be seeking his attention and clamoring for his benevolence. Jesus will always show compassion for the crowd one point it says, He saw them as sheep without a shepherd and He felt compassion for them. He will always give give His gifts and healings to them, but they will not be His focus. It's imperative that you understand that. The crowds were always following great throngs of people, but the crowds were never His focus. You're like, well, it's working. His fame's spreading. The crowds will never be His focus. As we prepare to move into the Sermon on the Mount, we see where Jesus puts His focus most consistently. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him, and He opened His mouth and taught them. So as chapter 4 ends and chapter 5 begins with great crowds following Jesus, Jesus sees the crowds. He recognized the crowd. He knows the great needs and He will minister to them. But we see a movement here that is integral to understanding how this king and his kingdom will function in this time of kingdom establishment. Jesus goes up on the mountain and He sits down. Now that's pretty big news right there. do not sound like much, but it's huge. We've already seen Jesus on a high mountain when He faced His final temptation by the devil. We'll see him, we see him on a mountain here. We'll see Him on a mountain during His transfiguration. And He'll be on a mountain when He gives His Great Commission. So important things happen when Jesus goes up on the mountain. It's an exalted place, like say maybe a king would assume. But it's not just the mountain that shows the authority, but the very act of sitting down. Remember I said Jewish rabbis sat down when they taught like we saw Jesus do in Luke when he was in Nazareth but kings sit down too right on thrones in places of power and positions of power so Jesus the rabbi king goes up on a mountain we don't know how big the mountain was we don't know how but not ever not the mountain was accessible to everybody so he goes up on the mountain and he sits down He authoritatively sits down and begins to authoritatively teach the precepts and the tenets of his kingdom. And the question is who is he teaching? When he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. There are crowds following Jesus everywhere. And when he sees them, at this point, he withdraws to a mountain and he sits down. His disciples would have known what that meant. Oh, Jesus is sitting down. He's getting ready to teach us something. Healing and serving and physical ministry was ceasing for the time being and the rabbi was about to teach. With all the needs of all the people around him, probably, I don't want to put it number. Of, just a huge crowd and people, heal me, touch me my, my brother, my father, my son, my daughter my mom, with all that going on around him, Jesus did the one thing that would make the most difference in the lives of those who are there at that time and in the years to come even in our time and beyond he did the most important thing, he taught his disciples you're like, I'm not feeling the weight of it, you should even if I'm not conveying it well, listen to me. This is the most needful thing for Him to do. People had physical maladies. People were oppressed by demons. And Jesus said, I've got to teach my disciples. And I, I could just imagine people saying, well, He just shut up and healed people. I didn't come here to hear Him talk. And I missed it. They missed the most important thing. The most important thing was not the physical things that Jesus was doing. The most important thing was the teaching that he was imparting to his disciples. In this kingdom that Jesus is establishing, in this kingdom that the king is proclaiming, the most important thing is that you understand who the king is and what the kingdom's about. So he taught them. And if He just healed people, those people would die eventually. And His fame might have meandered through a generation or two. But He taught His disciples. And He planted in them the good seed of the Word of the Kingdom. And it's that seed that we're still reaping benefits from today. He went up on the mountain... He sat down and His disciples came to Him and He opened His mouth and taught them. That is glory right there. If you've got eyes to see it. And what He's about to say in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, man, I'm excited about that and overwhelmed with it by it too. The king was showing his glory to the nations by healing and delivering, but now the king will reveal the fullness of his glory to his disciples in the words that he speaks to them, which is a process that is perpetual and will be perpetual into eternity future. These words spoken to his men, his followers, are how we still see Jesus and his kingdom most fully. And as He taught His disciples, as He revealed the kingdom to them with the crowds all around Him and them, Jesus was changing more than physical bodies. Praise God. He was destroying centuries of blindness and ignorance about God and His ways. He was establishing a forever kingdom that would bless the whole world, not building a temporary kingdom that was built around Him and His little ministry And that was just for the Jewish people only. No, he wasn't doing that. He was doing something that was going to last into eternity. The king was establishing his kingdom. And he was doing it with his teaching. And it was and it is truly glorious. So what's in this teaching? Well, that's for next time. But for now, we have a lot to apply out of this little passage. So we've seen the beginning of the public and wide-ranging ministry of Jesus today at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And He was clearly shown teaching, preaching, and healing. So we'll let that serve as our outline for our application points as well. But we're going to take them backwards from that order. okay? So we said teaching, preaching, healing. We're going to go healing, preaching, teaching. Okay. If you're taking notes and you're writing down application points, healing, preaching, teaching. Here we go. How can we apply what we see modeled through the ministry of Jesus? First, healing. You're like, alright, let's talk about this, right? Everybody's like, talk to me about healing because I've got questions. Okay, Jesus was healing the physical and spiritual diseases of His day. He was exercising His Lordship over even the fallen parts of the world. He would act and paralyzed people would start walking and moving. He would speak. And demons would leave people. He was showing amazing proofs of His goodness and His godness. Now, are we to follow His example today? Well, let me just say initially that yes, absolutely, we should pray and minister and serve and bless and work to see people healed in various ways. We should pray that God would work and heal people. The same Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that worked in and through Jesus is in us. And that Spirit, He can do whatever He wants to do. God didn't stop healing when the New Testament closed. Okay? He can heal today. I would also point out, however, and there's the rebuttal, right? That Jesus was the perfect Son of God, living in perfect obedience to the Father's plan and purpose. And yes, the same Spirit that was in Him is in us, but... The same sin that's in us was not in him. You are not Jesus, if you needed a reminder of that. Jesus healed all that were brought to him and that he personally ministered to. Nobody, nobody, nobody in our day and time heals all the people that are brought to them. These so called faith healers of our day are far too often charlatans seeking to line their pockets through special events and book sales, rather than actually operating in the power of God to see people healed and delivered. Now, am I saying no one today can operate in the healing power of God? Absolutely not. I am not saying that. But Jesus was revealing the glory of God and establishing His kingdom in a very peculiar way at a very particular time. So our fallenness which Jesus operated outside of as the perfect Son of God, restricts so much of what God will do in and through us now. We are no more sinful than the people of Jesus' time, but we are far more sinful than Jesus was, even at our best. And this sin and its effects mar so much of what we see and do today. So while we can and should pray for healing and deliverance for people, We entrust that, that healing work, to God and His purposes and His power. So I pray and ask that God will heal somebody. They don't get healed. Is God mad at me or upset with me or mad at them and upset with them? No. Is it my sin's fault that people don't get healed? Yes and no. God didn't say, well, if you were less sinful, I would have healed that person. It's not the way it works. Somebody's sick, we pray. We ask God to heal them. And if He does, we praise Him for it. And if He doesn't, we praise Him for it. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And if you hear anybody tell you you should be able to heal all diseases and sicknesses, that is not biblical. Jesus did it, they say. Yes, absolutely. Jesus walked on the water too. Jesus turned water into wine too. I'm not going to do that. Okay? This... Yes, pray for healing, and yes, worship God however He answers that prayer. Lay your hands on people. Anoint them with oil. I'm good with that. When we were wondering what was wrong with Lily five years ago, we called for the elders and we anointed her with oil and we prayed. And then she went and had surgery, and they took out this mask that was in her shoulder. Did we not exercise faith, trusting that God would just heal her? Absolutely not. We exercised faith in being obedient to the command to have the elders come and pray and anoint her with oil and then we did the next right thing which was take her to the doctor. People would say, well, you weren't walking in faith. I disagree disagree. wholeheartedly. Listen, it is very difficult to say for certain what God will do. But let me tell you something God's not going to do. God's not going to heal every sickness and disease today. He's not going to. Is that bad or wrong? No. Did He do it in Jesus' time? He did it with everybody that Jesus touched. But again, Jesus was one person in this great land mass and He saw thousands and thousands of people, I'm sure. And that's it. Then the apostles went out and they were healing some people. I'm not saying that healing shouldn't be commonplace. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray. I'm not even saying we should limit God in what He can do, but I'm telling you, God's not going to heal every sickness and disease in our day. He's not going to. So what do we do? We seek to heal people, just like Jesus did. We pray for them. We can help heal people by alleviating their physical and their spiritual suffering, praying for them, seeking physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual relief, in other ways too. We can feed hungry people. That's a form of healing. We can clothe cold people. We can provide shelter for homeless people. We can bless and encourage the downtrodden. And we must, listen to me, we must. We can help people in practical ways and thus show our faith. Actually, that's how we show our faith. James 2, right? You've heard this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We should be doing things. We should be, we should be alleviating the physical sufferings of people. We should be trying to alleviate the emotional, mental, and spiritual sufferings of people. We should be healing. James said, that's what you do when you have faith. We are to operate in our faith by helping people in practical ways. Praying for them. Asking God to heal them. And you know what really jumps out to me in seeing what Jesus did? It was everybody. It was Jews and Gentiles and pagans and migrants. It was everybody. And he seeked to alleviate their suffering in any way that he could. And he did a good job of it to the point that the whole area heard, this guy Jesus can make you well. There was a great diversity in the people that Jesus was helping. If we're just helping people like us, that's not faith. Clothes, food, counsel, love, service. These are forms of healing too. And everybody, all colors, all races, all tongues need this type of healing. So we should follow our king's example by healing in these ways as well. Not just people like us. Not just saved people. Especially those of the household of the faith, Paul would say. But people who are in need. That's the kind of people we should be seeking to heal. So if we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to seek to heal people. Healing. But it's not all. We don't just want to make hungry people full. We want to make dead people alive. So we're not only healing, but we're preaching to healing. Preaching. Jesus didn't just try to meet physical needs. That may have been all the crowd was after that was following Him, but Jesus had a bigger and bigger agenda than just here and now. Jesus had a bigger plan than physical wellness. He wanted to see people established as kingdom citizens. And for that to happen, He had to proclaim or preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I'll repeat that concept. It's not enough to meet people's physical needs. even if that meant miraculous healings. If we clothe and feed and house people in the here and now, but they end up in hell for eternity, how can we say that we've done what we should have? We, like Jesus, have to preach the gospel in order to give people what they truly need. I can use food as an avenue to bless people and then have an avenue into their lives to preach the gospel, but food and clothes aren't an end in and of themselves. I want to preach the gospel to people. Again, I'm not saying we shouldn't meet physical needs. But we should not only meet physical needs. Because that's what people truly need. The spiritual reality is even more pressing than the physical one. And according to the Bible, only the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, only the gospel can meet the imperative spiritual needs. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It is the gospel that is the very power of God for salvation. There is no other way to be saved. People will not be saved by your good example. Your good example doesn't hurt, but they're not going to be saved that way. Preaching the gospel is of primary importance in dealing with the needs of people. And some people will say, I don't know what to preach. They'll say, well, just tell them what God did for you. That's a good start, but it's not enough either. If there's no gospel involved, there's no power to save there. If you say, well, God's been real good to me. I was on a bad path and He took me off of it. And now I'm feeling good. That's great. But it's not the gospel. Your personal testimony cannot save people if it doesn't include the gospel. And I know some folks are intimidated here not knowing what the gospel truly is. There's a lot of good tools to use to present the gospel. There's good tracts out there that you can use. Again, don't just hand them out. Give them to people. Speak to people. Love people. Preach the gospel to them. You can look up the four spiritual laws. Southern Baptists are doing this new thing called the three circles. The Romans Road, you probably heard of that. There's a slew of others. The best gospel presentation outline that I've ever heard comes from Evangelism Explosion. It's a five-point outline. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith. Okay, Grace, man, God, Christ, faith. Grace. Heaven is a free gift. You can't earn it or deserve it. Man is a sinner and he deserves the wrath of God. God is holy and he cannot tolerate sin. So He sent Christ, who was holy and lived a perfect life, who lived, died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended into glory, and we received that salvation as a gift of faith. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith. Listen to me. Some of you all, school, whatever, you've studied for tests And you've studied and you've memorized and you've labored. Some of you have listened to songs thousands of times and they just rattle off your tongue. What are you doing with the gospel? Oh, well, I'm not really comfortable with that. Get comfortable with it. Master it. Memorize it on purpose so that you can preach it to other people because that's how they're going to be saved. Make it The priority of your life to master the gospel and how to share it. And yes, it's going to look different every time you share it. We don't want a canned presentation. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith. Will you pray with me? (laughs) What? Okay, never mind. I'm no good at this. There's no other way that people are going to be saved. Did you hear what I just said? There's no other way that people can be saved. And delivered from the wrath of God that is coming upon the sons of disobedience. There's no other way. So do something about it. By the power of the Spirit of God, commit your life to knowing, preaching, sharing, living out the Gospel and use your words to share it with other people. That should be your life's ambition. That should be why you work. That should be why you go to school. That should be why you take times of leisure around your house. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation for everybody who believes. How then will they call on Him in whom they've not believed, Romans 10 14 says? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You say, well, nobody's ever sent me. I'm sending you today. In the authority of Jesus Christ Himself, I'm sending you to proclaim the gospel. Not I, but Christ. The love of Christ compels us and moves us. Yes, we should be feeding and clothing people, but not without preaching the gospel. You hold the keys, Christian, to heaven and hell. And I'm not telling you that to beat you up. I'm telling you that to encourage you. Please, master the gospel and preach it. That's what Jesus did. So He was healing. He was preaching. One other thing that He was doing, right? He was teaching. Jesus taught in the synagogues like a good rabbi would. He would read the scripture and then give the meaning as he was given opportunity. And that's what we do in our meeting times here on Sunday and Wednesday. We we read the word and we talk about the word. And that's surely important. But here's the question for you should you be teaching? You say, well, I don't really have a platform. You talk all the time, Jason. But this application point does apply to you. You should be teaching. We are to, all of us, teach what we know to others, helping them grow and mature. We talked about this Wednesday night here in the adult class. We all have an obligation to be pouring ourselves into someone and to be being poured into by someone. You know what it's called? It's called discipleship. And it's the call of every follower of Jesus Christ. Every follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus taught in the synagogues, yes, but He also purposefully poured Himself into His disciples. He put all of His eggs into one basket. Twelve of them. One of them was rotten. And He knew that. He purposefully instructed these twelve men and brought them to maturity so that He could entrust this great gospel to them and they could carry it to the ends of the earth until the end of time. Listen to what I'm about to say. You will do nothing more Christ-like in your Christian life than teaching another person or other people about what it means to be a disciple. It was the very focus of Jesus' ministry. And you will do nothing more Christ-like than to pour yourself into your children as disciples, into your wives, husbands, into the people that are sitting here this morning, and the people who would be here who are not here. Here's the concept. It's real simple. Each one teach one. You say, well, I don't really know enough. There's a whole book that you could spend time in. And if you don't know the answers to questions, there's people here who can answer your questions. I challenge the people here and myself Wednesday night pray and ask God to give you one person. One person to meet with, to disciple, to pour yourself into, just like Jesus did these 12 guys. And you will do nothing more Christ like in your life than disciple another person. It was the focus of his whole ministry. It was the focus of his three and a half years of public ministry. Yes, he healed people. And yes, he preached to the masses and his focus was on 12 men. What's your focus on? I'm telling you, pray and ask God for one person. One person. Maybe he gives you six. Pray for one. God, who is it that I should be pouring myself into on purpose, intentionally? Send them to me. Give me eyes to see and a heart to serve that one person. Jesus ministered to and served the multitudes, but He invested the most of His life in His twelve guys who followed Him around everywhere He went and listened when He sat down to teach. They wanted to be so close to Him, the Jewish rabbis would say, that the dust that came up from His feet got on them so that they became like He was. When He sat down to teach, they were glued to what He was about to say. It was His disciples who came to Him on the mountain to be instructed, and it was them that was His primary interest and goal. Healing was good, preaching was necessary, but teaching was His main focus, and it's supposed to be yours too, and it's supposed to be mine too. We see it in the life of Paul. Paul says this, that's the wrong verse. It should be 2 Timothy 2. two, And the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others likewise. Disciple makers should be producing disciple makers. Not just disciples. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the discipleship pattern. The Word poured into flesh it turns into the Word, into flesh, into Word, into flesh. Incarnating the very word of God, pouring yourself into somebody else, into faithful men who will be able to teach others likewise. Paul said this in Colossians Him we proclaim, speaking of Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul said, if I could boil it all down to one thing, this is it. I want to present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. Listen, healing is good. Blessing and meeting physical needs is good. It's not bad. It's not wrong. But this is what's important. This is what Paul struggled with all the energy of God that was in him to do. To present people mature in Christ. And was it not Jesus' final command? Matthew 28. We'll be done. And Jesus came and said to them, His disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and heal people. Go therefore and make sure... Make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of Each one. Teach one. Make disciples. Teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. This is how we will impact the ends of the earth until the end of time. I'm telling you, I'll take a person who is faithful with a person or two over an arena full of people who come for the show. So would Jesus. Jesus healing, preaching, and teaching. Let's pray. God, Your plan is perfect. We've said that for weeks and months now. And Your plan tells us to heal, to preach, and to teach. God, would You help us to be faithful with what You have entrusted us to do. May we be like Jesus. By the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we don't want to try to do better. We just want to be more like Jesus as we abide in Him. Help us to heal and to preach and to teach. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand and receive a benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can. You're dismissed.